Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. And on this week's show, we're presenting highlights from Podcast Day 24, the international conference that took place on Monday in Sydney, London and New York. We're going to bring you three choice clips, one from each continent, that gives you the inside track on the current trends in podcasting. Let's get stuck in. We start in reverse order with one of the co-creators of Dolly Parton's America, Shima Oliahi. Working with the creator of Radiolab, Jada Boomrad, whose dad was a friend of Dolly's, the show tracked the iconic singer's career and personal life and mapped on top the contemporary history of America. Here's Shima on how they landed on that approach and how they planned to make Dolly cry. Thank you. So um, I approached this series like a detective. Uh, Because of Jad, of course, we had access to Dolly and he wanted to do something but didn't know quite what. Someone had floated an idea around about doing a Dolly album mixtape, like an album of cover songs. And that's when I started my research. So my first question was, how do I report a story on an icon who's already been so over-reported? She's already written an autobiography. She's been four decades in the public eye. And I didn't know if I could find anything new. And what ended up happening was, as I started my adventure, I had a series of revelations, um, some by myself and some like alongside the host of the series. And what Dolly ended up doing was force me to look at myself like a mirror, um, the same way she she did for all of America uh, as we continued. So the first crazy coincidence is before I started uh, researching, I had seen Dolly perform once and it was actually in October 2016 and it was the end of her national tour right at the end of the election. So as all of the vitriol was happening in the country, I saw her create the happiest place on earth. And that's when uh, when I was thinking about that moment. I encountered an an essay series by Sarah Smarsh in No Depression magazine, and she put it into perfect words, what I had seen. So I was sitting in my home office. I was on Twitter. Writer Sarah Smarsh told me that her woe moment came around the same time when she was in Austin online watching people live tweet that Dolly show. The people who were, were tweeting were all women, and one woman in particular. She said, that majestic bitch just started playing a goddamn pan flute. And all this was happening. The pan flute, the tweeting, the touring. At exactly the moment when the 2016 election was turning very ugly. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. How do you lie to the FBI and now you're running for president? 
Like she tore right through all of that noise, through the general election and beyond. In this very divided moment, Dolly seems to maybe be a kind of unifier. In the process of my detective work, this was the first new question I had about Dolly. How was she the great unifier? And in the first interview I did with Sarah Smarsh, I realized that while we have made her collectively a boob joke, or many people have, um, that she was the kind of the only safe bosom that any American could cry on. And I felt that that was really unique and almost extraordinary at this time. And when I was reflecting back on my experience of her concert, and as I started doing research, I realized that she was telling these stories about home for 40 years. And at first I felt a little bit fooled, like, oh, she's tricking us to like believe in this kind of persona or this like Dolly, you know, fairy hologram that she has at Dollywood. And it can't be real. And so I was trying to find the holes or like puncture the image. And that's when I found, I, I was on the New York Times website and I saw this class written up called Dolly Pardons America. And I reached out to the professor and when I did get on the phone, we spoke for four hours straight and then she invited us to meet her class. So this was my first reporting trip for the series. It was Easter weekend and I walk in with Jad and I was, you know, everyone was talking about Easter, but I told them about my first experience like meeting Jesus, which was when I was five. I didn't grow up with any religion, but when my brother was born, I went to the Catholic church the next day because our closest family friend was going to church. So I was talking about how I didn't know who this guy was who was naked on the wall. And like, it was so scary to me. When I left the room, the kids all asked Jad, where does this person come from? Like they thought I must be an alien. It was, I was so a fish out of water. When I came back in, something had shifted in the room and a kind of intimacy was unveiled that we weren't expecting. And that's when people shared about their accent. My mom was like, hey, we need to sit down. If you want people to take you seriously, we're gonna have to work on the way you talk. Lainey says her and her mom would actually practice words throughout the day. Four, four, four. Get, get. Get. Trying to pronounce each word so Get. there was no hint of Southern accent I, in there at all. And I, we would do this back and forth I, all day. Yeah. She's like, you need to talk lower Ten. and slower because you're going to have to work twice as hard for people to take you half as seriously. I've had a lot of similar experiences. Um, Ain't. Aunt. Holler. Hollow. Flower. Flower. You know, my I was sat down when I was younger as well and told that I would have to yes. learn to straighten out my accent. Yes. Far. Yes. Fire. Oil. Yes. Oil. Oil. This moment was so astounding because as a first-generation American, I was always the weird one in the room. And this is something I deeply identified with with Jad. Um, his experience growing up in Tennessee it was my same experience growing up in Nevada. And there was something about what the kids were saying about being the other. When I had seen them as kind of the mainstream force of growing up, um, and it reminded me of my cousins in Iran who never got to leave their homeland. And I remember when I met them when I was an adult, 
one of my cousins cried to me and said that, you know, she would always be an other on the world stage because she never got to come to America. And she also shared that she'd always have an accent, that she'd always be out of place because she was not born here. And that was the first moment that I kind of started connecting. There is something astoundingly beautiful about the Middle East and the South. And there's a oneness here that I really want to explore. At that point, it was just a kernel of an idea. And I, after that, I booked my first, inter, my first interview with Grandma Betty, uh, Sarah Marsh's grandmother. We went to her Kansas farm and she cried about the song, The Code of Many Colors. And she shared about her many years of domestic abuse with different husbands. And at the end of the interview and crying together, we got in a car and we drove to the cemetery where some of her ex-husbands were buried. And it was back in the car that I kind of had a breakdown. And so this is a clip of that moment. It didn't actually make the series, but this was the key to everything that came after. My parents came to America. Hearing what, what country? Uh, Iran. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Then my grandmother on my father's side, she was like a village girl. Some third cousin or something came to the front door and was like knocking and saying, that inheritance is mine. I'm going to murder you. She's like, just try, you know, like, <laughs> and then she locked all the doors. She talks big, right? Hearing your story, I know you guys went through so much, but it's really beautiful. You guys were together. I think that was really hard for my cousin. Sorry, it's okay, Jeff. But like... When I'm uh, my two female cousins on my dad's side, they stayed. Even if things were horrible, they did stay. But I don't think it was better for them. It was pretty bad. It's just been interesting, like through this journey of like looking at Dolly or like East Tennessee or even getting to know you guys. It's making me connected to the Middle East, which is a very strange thing to be in the Kansas Plains and like I'm just thinking about Tehran, you know. A place I've never been. A village like, you know, my grandma grew up in. So after that trip uh, with Grandma Betty, I got to meet Jad's dad. And the only connection I had had with him before that moment was I had heard Jad's first interview with Dolly Parton, which was, you know, her just doing all her Dollyisms for basically 90 minutes straight. But at the very end, she starts, you know, kind of poking fun at Jad's dad and his Lebanese accent. There's something about this Southern accent teasing this Lebanese accent that again brought back this idea of oneness. Um, and then I got asked to go to the second interview with Dolly, which was very nerve wracking. And so as much as we had spoken to all of these people that were saying these incredible things about Dolly Parton, without her actually, you know, opening up or giving us anything new, we didn't really have anything that spectacular. So I was very nervous. I researched for months. I called every author, every journalist. Um, I read every book I watched. I found archival that I thought no one had seen. And then um, after, after about four or five months, I got together with Jad and Basically, what I did was I took everything I found and I made a four and a half hour trajectory. So kind of like a PowerPoint presentation, something to bring into the studio with Dolly to kind of surprise her or like make her feel things she hadn't felt. And this was um, this is where kind of my goal came into play. I have a background uh, in psychology. And so 
I know that there's a story that everyone has that they don't tell anyone. And that my goal was just to find out what was the thing that made Dolly cry at night. So I actually told Jad, like, the number one thing that needs to happen in this interview is Dolly needs to cry. And he he thought I was absolutely crazy. But I felt like we hadn't done our job if we hadn't gotten to a place of real emotion. So the day of the interview, we go in with this four and a half hour trajectory and we were totally united. We actually said a prayer in the car before we went in because we knew if we couldn't get her to say something new, we just didn't have a series. So we go in so nervous. Jad is leading and he pulls out his computer, starts doing the PowerPoint and um, and asks her questions along the way. And I was kind of there based on the foundation of my research to know when to come in and push or when to come in and interject, um, especially when something had been passed over that I knew there was an answer to. And back and forth, we were just united in this way. And halfway through, we actually had a bathroom break. And I remember Dolly and I, you know, we went to the same restroom and she looked at me just so surprised. Like, I did not know you guys came this seriously. I was not expecting this. And at the end of those four and a half hours where we felt like we literally left the planet, she had cried twice. And when Jad and I got back into the car, we looked at each other and we said, we knew we had something special. Like we knew we could build a whole series off of this. And from there, I really just took liberties with the framing of Dolly Parton's America and Dolly Parton's world. So I started connecting, you know, divorce rates to her breakup with Porter Wagner, nine to five to the women's movement. Um, also country music expanding as like, as Americans are migrating. And I even zoomed out into Dolly's world. And though I think the reason I was able to have these revelations over the series and how it became so personal was that um, I remember this quote from this like Buddhist philosopher I'd read when I was much younger. And he said, if when you try so hard that the sweat streams off your brow and you squeeze out wisdom, which you didn't even think you had, you can make the impossible possible. So kind of the craziest revelation I had was this moment in South Africa that really mirrored what's actually going on in America today. And my favorite moment from the series is the day that the Jolene episode was due, I found the cellmate of Nelson Mandela. His name is Tokyo Sashuale. And I called him just because in a very early interview, a writer named Wayne Bloodsoe from Knoxville had shared about Kinky Friedman's autobiography and that Nelson Mandela loved country music. And when I get on the phone with Tokyo, he shares with me this incredible story. Do you remember one of the Dolly songs that you heard Nelson Mandela play? He loved Jolene. Oh, wow. He loved Jolene. I just think about... A night at Robben Island in the dark when Jolene is playing over the loudspeakers. The prisoners hear it in their cells. On the other side of the wall, the guards are listening too. And both groups of people are are, are having the same experience. No human being cannot be affected by Jolene. According to Tokyo, this song is not about love. It's about fear. The prisoners feel that because they've lost their freedom. And the guards feel that because their country's changing and they can sense they're about to lose power. 
both are feeling the same fear, but for very different reasons. We are all human beings. The Jews and the jailer. But we all come from one country. But we all don't want to lose, whether it's your man or your country. Nobody wants to get hurt. Don't hurt me. Next up, we travel to London, where former BBC and WNYC exec Tony Phillips delivered the keynote lecture for the conference. In this unguarded essay, Tony reflects on his career and delivers a warning to the industry a year ago to the day of the Colston statue coming down in Bristol. Here's Tony. Hello. It's a pleasure to have been invited to talk today about the future of audio and of our industry. I want to first go back a little bit in time in order to hopefully see a clearer path to the future. My own road into audio started perhaps in Bristol, and to be precise, on my first day at drama school. I spent two years in the early 1980s at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School on a professional training course for actors. Much of what I went on to learn about audio storytelling actually goes back to those years, and to some remarkably gifted tutors and fellow students. But critically, on that first day, I also started to learn a lesson about about myself and how I'm perceived by others. It was lunchtime and feeling very much like a fish out of water. I wanted to escape the building and spend a little time on my own. I'd just turned 20 years old. I'm from Yorkshire, And to my knowledge, no one in my family had done anything like this, taken the unconventional road and not gone to university. But here I was, and I was hungry. I asked one of the older students where I could get a sandwich. Here's what he said, something like this. You need to go to the black boy. Go out of the front door of the school, turn right, and this will bring you to White Ladies Road. Turn left 
up the hill to Black Boy Hill and the Black Boy Cafe is on the left. What stunned me is that these street names that I was told to look out for, locating Bristol's historic past as a city built in almost entirely on the proceeds of the transatlantic slave trade, these names Black Boy, White Ladies, didn't seemingly phase my fellow student. Not a bit. The irony that he was saying them to me didn't seem to register. I decided to follow the instructions. I walked up White Ladies Road, which morphed into Black Boy Hill, and there I saw a sign above a shop saying Black Boy Cafe. I walked in to be confronted with all the normal sandwich stuff and a poster behind the counter of one of those caricatured, wide-eyed, smiling, thick-lipped, minstrel-like boys. The shop owner appeared from behind a curtain of some sort. Rubbing his hands together cheerily, he asked, Hello, what can I get you? I remember not being able to take my eyes off the poster. I was also taken aback by the normality of his demeanour towards me. Just another student wanting a sandwich. Nothing odd here. I just left. I took a right and walked down White Ladies Road in search of food. But also reflecting on how I was going to navigate life in this new city as an adult where you are not being heard or being seen. Now if you keep walking down White Ladies Road in Bristol... You reach Park Street, where the road is a steep downhill. And at the bottom, it swings around to the left. And there in the distance stood the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston. Or at least it did until on this day, June the 7th, 2020. Exactly one year ago today. As a response to the unfathomably brutal killing of George Floyd at the hands of the police officer in Minneapolis, in the United States, with millions of others, I watched the news footage of Colston's statue being ripped off its plinth and cast into the harbour just a short distance away. Make no mistake, this was a moment. We all know this. According to the historian and broadcaster David Olashuga, it's believed that Colston was responsible for the deaths of approximately 19,000 Africans. 19,000 victims of slavery. For Colston, Africans served a purpose. We served a purpose. To cut sugarcane or tobacco... For the man who worked in the Black Boy Cafe, my purpose was to hand over a pound or something for a sandwich. Neither Colston or the man in the Black Boy Cafe really saw or heard black people. Black people were both invisible and inaudible, beyond our usefulness as a tool or an implement or as a customer. Human being, 
didn't really come into the equation. The twin existential pillars of being part of the African diaspora is being heard and being seen. And this is certainly at the heart of what it means to carve out a career in the audio industry. At the end of drama school, all the students have to learn to promote and market themselves to theatres, directors, etc. Frankly, anyone who might employ them. We'd write letters of introduction and include headshots and CVs and send them to every repertory company in the country in the hope that we could land an audition to join their company in the new season. I remember writing to the Theatre Royal in York, stressing my links to the area, born just 20 miles or so away in Leeds. York was the only theatre company that replied with anything other than a pro forma rejection letter. My hopes were high as I remember, the envelope being handwritten. The letter went something like, Dear Mr Phillips, thank you for your interest. As you might not be aware, York is not a multicultural city and therefore we have no need for multiracial casting. Enclosed is your CV and photograph. Some things you just wish you'd kept. But I remember being so angry I just threw it away. Invisibility often sits at the heart of any organisation, big or small, going through harassment or discrimination problems. Their first recourse tends to be to engage with HR and send everyone on one-day courses, half-day courses, 90-minute online courses. The aim is to change the culture, and especially since last summer's shocking events in Minnesota. So in terms of the future of this industry, one year on today is the perfect day for those in positions of power to reflect and ask themselves, what have we done? And that could mean anyone calling themselves a producer, an executive producer, an editor, a company director, an owner, a director general, a CEO... What have we done in terms of listening? Have we heard what black and brown colleagues are saying in the room, on the Zoom, in the interview? Are they in the room? When we are there, can you see us? I found some figures about the BBC that I strongly suspect apply to others beyond the BBC and beyond these shores. The BBC's annual report in 2019-2020 tells us that in 2019, of all jobs advertised on the BBC's careers hub, 42% of the applicants were black and brown people. 20% of those were hired. In the same year, 58% of applicants were white, 80% were hired. It didn't get any better in 2020. It's not the numbers alone that are significant. It's the stark experiential contrast in applying for positions and not being successful. So in 2020, more black and brown people applied 
and the split was 50-50 in terms of applications. But still, 20% were black and brown hires and whites remained at 80%. When I worked in New York at WNYC Studios between 2016 and 2020, the company had their own crisis around representation and accusations of racism. It hinged on, again, listening to black and brown staff. The culture at WNYC was deemed to be broken in 2017. Four senior white men, three hosts and the head of content were fired, asked to leave, resigned, retired, combinations of the above. A culture of sexism, racism and workplace harassment had been allowed to grow. Most disturbing to me and to many others was the dismissal of three black female co-hosts of a new show to the station in 2007 called The Takeaway. The revolving door of dispensability saw Adora Udoji, Farai Chidea and Celeste Headley, all brilliant journalists and hosts, enter the building one by one, pretty much one year each, endure such obvious lack of support for their litany of complaints against the other co-host and the eventual sole host of the show, John Hockenbury, they took their complaints all the way to the top of the organisation to the CEO, Laura Walker. Nothing happened. One by one, however, the exit door was held open for them in the hope that they would just go away. Only when a journalist wrote about the decade of abuse and bullying at WNYC did the organisation set about a process of culture change and transformation in 2018. The signs were really not great. Company-wide away days looking at race and discrimination were rolled out. The one thing that didn't happen was any meaningful change to the structure and processes at the company. Reversing the alarming figures, for example, for black and brown staff retention, for example. On average, black and brown staff stayed at New York Public Radio for one to three years. Why? A number of reasons, but mainly you leave any situation, any organisation, when you know that you're not being heard or seen. Systemic racism is real. So after my own experience of not being seen for certain jobs in the theatre, I made up my mind to put a pause on my acting career, such as it was, and take some time out at university. Looking across a bookshop shelf in North London, whilst I was considering which course to take and where, I was attracted by a single title, To Be a Slave by Julius Lester. Published in 1968, Lester had gone deep into the archives of slave narratives gathered in the United States in the, United, in the 1930s. Published in 1968, Lester had gone deep into the archive of slave narratives gathered in the United States in the 1930s. Hundreds of elderly African Americans were interviewed by scholars and historians to recollect stories of their childhood when, of course, they were born into the institution of slavery. Lester set out to educate children and young people 
of what that experience might have been like. He created a book based solely on these accounts and put together a blow-by-blow account from sunup to sundown of what it would be like to live as a slave in the United States. From standing on the auction block to life on the plantation, work, food, rest, play, family, resistance, freedom. The preface of the book, which in the end riveted me to the spot, was this. An ex-slave from Tennessee asked, In all the books you've studied, you have never studied Negro history, have you? You studied about the Indian and white folks, but what did they tell you about the Negro? If you want Negro history, you'll have to get it from someone who wore the shoe, and by and by, from one to the other, you will get a book. The quote And the book, quite literally, changed the course of my life and led directly to the University of East Anglia to read American history. This interest in oral history led to Studs Terkel and this led on to the BBC after graduation where the idea of hearing stories from people who wore the shoe has never been far from whatever I went on to make. Making the invisible visible. Or to put it another way, the inaudible audible. There's no doubt in my mind that George Floyd's death in May 2020 and the pulling down of the Colston statue on June the 7th, 2020, were pivotal moments in their own way for the world to witness. A new temporary museum opened just a few days ago in Bristol, exhibiting the recovered statue of Colston from Bristol Harbour. It's not standing upright, but it's laying down flat still damaged from the day and covered in graffiti. It suggests to me that change is difficult and it will only come when we have the courage and the foresight to overhaul the structure and change the shape of things. Cultural change is possible, but it will mean that sometimes you have to tear down the odd structure. The Haitian historian and anthropologist Michel Rolf Troyol, in his brilliant study of power and the production of history, said, The ultimate mark of power may be its invisibility. The ultimate challenge, the exposition of its roots. So on this historic day, I'm indebted to the people in Bristol for tearing down that statue. I believe that in their actions, they've illustrated so clearly what the audio industry needs to do to secure its own future. Reconfigure its structure and shape. But as Troyo suggests, it's about getting to the roots, the subterranean. That's what matters. Sometimes you might actually have to take a vertical structure and lay it on its side, horizontally, to start seeing the change. The exceptional Bristol-based poet Vanessa Kisule captured another great observation about the Colson statue in a poem she wrote last year entitled Hollow. In this extraordinarily evocative poem, she reflects on the toppling of the statue and the powerful revelation when a piece broke off 
to reveal that it was hollow. The revelation that this weighty figure, this statue that had dominated the centre of Bristol since 1895, was literally empty. And of course, what happens if you tap on the side of a hollow metal object? It echoes. And I'm sure if you listen hard enough, you can hear the voices of Africans going back many years that are waiting to be heard. On air, behind the scenes as producers, editors, researchers, CEOs. Just listen. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now here's Richard Palmer from Triton Digital and Jamie Cho from Commercial Radio Australia to reveal the trends in this high growth market. Okay, uh, we're going to be uh, giving you some numbers today around some podcast consumption using two data points, the Infinite Dial Australia study and uh, the uh, Australian podcast ranker. We'll also walk through some of those, what we see are some of the trends coming up. So uh, let's, uh, let's get started. We'll start off with the Infinite Dial Australia. Now the Infinite Dial, the original study, is a study that's been going for 20 years in the US looking at digital audio consumption. So it's podcasting, but it's also uh, streaming and, and other stuff that people are doing on smart speakers and on their phones and whatever else. Um, the study's been going in Australia for five years now, and, uh, and uh, what we do is, it's a mirror of the American study. Um, uh, 1,000 respondents in each country. It's, uh, the population spread is um, indicative of the Australian population, so we've got a, a uniform sample. What we're doing is studying uh, uh, consumption on digital audio from Australia. So, the first one is uh, monthly podcast listening. In 2021, it had, a, it had a big rise. Now, take a look at uh, the rise over the previous years. It was pretty steady, but in 21, it had a big rise. When we look at weekly consumption, it took another rise. So, um, is it COVID? Uh, could it be something else? Here are two data points that we did not release um, in the study because of, of the sheer size of the study. The first one is the length of time. How long have people been listening as a podcast listener? Now we start to get a, a, a sense of, of what's happening here. The study was conducted in, uh, in January to March this year. So 9% of Australians had been listening for less than six months. 20% had been listening six months to less than one year. So, uh, here's a sign. What is the COVID traffic? What is the COVID pickup here? We're now looking at about 29%. 
And then from there, um, uh, the amount of Australians that sing from one year to less than three years is 35%. So what we're seeing is the vast majority of Australians who are sampling podcasts are newbies to it. This is another data point that we've, uh, that we've not released previously, is how many uh, podcasts are Australians subscribing to. So um, it's, it's stable. Uh, so what's, uh, what's happening here is, is it's, seven, it's seven podcasts that people are subscribing to. It is down. I think what's happening here is that there are new uh, podcast consumers coming in and still getting their head around things. But it's not, it's not like, like us in the room who will subscribe to an abundance of podcasts. It, people have their set favorites and, and, are, and are listening from there. Um, so what's happening here is, is, is think about that rise in weekly consumption. Think about the length of people of time that people have been listening to podcasts. It's actually a mixture of people coming in for the first time and those who have been fairly disengaged with podcasting before who are now spending some more time with it. For now, I will now jump to Richard to talk about the Australian Podcast Ranker. Thanks, Jamie. If you haven't downloaded or seen The Infinite Dial, I encourage everyone to, to do it. I love it. Every year it's like Christmas. Open a box full of goodies, insights to help uh, guide the market. Now, the uh, Australian Podcast Ranker has been going, as we know, since October 2019 with these phenomenal publishers up on screen now that make up radio, television, newspaper, independents. Um, and they do a great job every single week, every day, creating content. Um, now, the Australian Podcast Ranker uses the IAB Podcast Measurements technical guidelines to be able to measure publishers so like for like. And the reason for the Ranker, with the help of Commercial Radio Australia, was to be able to put trust in what was being put out to market for agencies and buyers so they could better understand what the makeup of the podcast uh, landscape is and the downloads in market. So every month we measure over 48 million, or last month we measured from participating publishers 48.2 million downloads of content. And that's incredible. And that makes up 18 publishers, 2,500 podcasts are measured, and over 260,000 episodes. Now, I was surprised by this. When I was digging through the data, I was like, wow, 260,000 episodes that we measure. The next slide is really interesting. Uh, 25,000 of them were uploaded in April. So that means there's over 200,000 episodes in the month of April that were downloaded. So when you're creating content and you're thinking about creating your content, think about the long tail content. Think about how you can use your platform's dynamic ad insertion or dynamic content insertion to make content that's relevant for when it's downloaded. So if you put in an advertiser, and we all know the words, baked in, if you bake in an advertiser or you bake in content that's targeted for today, well, it's not going to be relevant next month or the month after. So using dynamic content or dynamic ad insertion is really going to nail home your content with the listener when they download it. So this is, this is a really interesting figure. So the month of April, this is the top 100 podcasts and the all-Australian top 100 podcasts. And what's really encouraging here is that the Australian content is not too dissimilar to the top 100 overall. So the top 100 measures all podcasts that are downloaded that are international and local, but the all-Australian top 100 podcast is Australian content that's created here. And you can see there are some really strong titles in both of those that are made here, right here in Australia. And this is the breakdown of the categories. So comedy, Australians, we love a laugh, I do. I particularly love a laugh, especially at myself. Uh, followed by news, society and culture, true crime, sports and business. Now, just going back to the top 100 and in those top 10 there, when you're creating your content, you know, 
being in the top 10 doesn't mean you're like successful. Oh, it does mean you're successful. You're getting the downloads. But if you're creating content that targets business users, a bit like the publisher Fear and Greed that's in the ranker, that is making, audience, uh, making content for a niche audience. It's relevant for them, and it's very successful. And we see that in there with their numbers and the numbers that have been downloaded each month. It doesn't mean being in the top 10 that you're not successful. You're just making content that's relevant for your audience that is successful. And then it was also successful for your advertisers and brands that are with you. This one is one that we haven't shown before. This shows the platform breakdown of where the listening is happening. And this, I'm sure everyone in the room is very interested to see this. So as you can see, there's always that conversation around what's the biggest platform, where are the downloads happening from? So Apple Podcasts dominate. So this is numbers over the last six months, taking a look at. So Apple, it's the very top, followed by iOS unspecified apps. Now, what does that mean? That means there are apps that are using, iOS devices that are using Apple Core Media Library to be able to you know, send the audio to the end user. We're not always able to identify those, so we see that as unspecified. Followed behind it is Spotify. But what we see in the numbers as I was looking back over the months, Google Podcasts and platforms like iHeart and others um, are slowly rising. And that's due to the content they're creating, especially when we look at platforms like iHeart, um, where the, they're making content just for their platform. You have to get it on their platform only. Um, but Google Podcasts and Assistance, or Assistance Devices, we're seeing that rise month on month. And that's because people are creating more content that's snackable, and you can easily get to it by just saying, hey, Google, I want to listen to X podcast. A little bit of a change from the last six months. So looking over six months, the six months before this, Wednesday was the most dominant day to download a podcast. As we all know, we get busier later on in the week, Friday, we've got work to do, or if you're a bit like me from about lunchtime, it's Friday afternoon drinks. Saturday, we've got family, we've got kids. Sunday, there's a little bit of an uptick there. So when creating your content, keep in mind that majority of the listening that's happening from the participating publishers is in the first four days of the week, and Tuesday being the most dominant. So what does the next 12 months look like? Okay, so um, we saw the rise in weekly consumption. We saw the rise in monthly consumption. Um, if I compare that to a graph from the US, we used to be three years behind. If you track how many Australians were consuming podcasts on a regular basis compared to the US, we were three years behind. As of 21, we're now six months behind. The other, the other slide, that, uh, another piece of uh, stat that we have is that Podcasting awareness amongst Australians is 91%, and that compares with the US, which is 77. So I think we're going to see probably in the next 12 months, Australian consumption per capita surpass the US, and, and Australia become a, a, a leading market for, for global consumption per capita for podcasting, which is fantastic. Um, we do need to tep temper that with a bit, of, a bit of realism there around the subscriber numbers. These people that are coming on are not going to be consuming more podcasts, or the regular person isn't going to be consuming more podcasts than they once were, um, that subscriber base is still going to stay the same. So I think from a podcast creator point of view, the, the, the messages that everyone's been doing forever around subscribing or following continue to be important. Uh, and that presents an opportunity and a challenge. The first one is that um, there are people trying podcasting all the time, so you're going to get some new followers. But for your existing followers, they're going to uh, only have a capacity to, to, to engage and subscribe to so much. So just be mindful that um, as people see new podcasts, they're actually probably going to make a decision of which ones they're going to drop off from. So it is, a, it is an, an opportunity and a risk, and it's, it's, it's about what Richard was saying about the ongoing process of engagement and keeping, keeping your listeners um, um, hooked. So I think from an Australian promotion and creative point of view, we've got a, a fantastic 12 months coming up. 
Yeah, and and where I see the next 12 months, the platforms that we showed up on the screen before, around Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts, um, I see them growing. I see platforms like Spotify, iHeart, Listener App, um, and, and publishers having their own apps, growing content that is only exclusive or exclusive to their platform. I see them growing their share and downloads in the market. Um, and then I see a lot more investment from advertisers and more publishers joining the Australian Podcast Ranker over the next 12 months. But it's an exciting industry and we're glad to, to be here and share some of these figures with you. So thank you. Have a great day, guys. Thank you. So much. Thank you. That was Richard Palmer and Jamie Cho. Thanks to them and to Podcast Day 24 for sharing these clips with the Media Podcast. You can discover a further 23 hours of hand-picked insight and analysis of the podcast sector just by going to podcastday24.com. It's all available on demand for £125. We'll be back in two weeks with our regular show. Until then, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and this was a Rethink Audio and PPM production. Bye-bye.